Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 21 and 22, which begin with the Mariner buying out the store and end with the Gatesman making a shocking discovery. With his tomato plant secured, the Mariner looks at the rest of Helen's store and says, I'll take them too. And Helen's like, what? You bought everything. He's like, oh yeah, I'll take the shelves. Right, they're made of wood. He wants wood. Popping back into the minutes from last week, it looks like they've got wire sides. I don't know if that's a solid bottom, though, because it's very blurry from the shot that I'm looking at. Let me scrub back In second 20 of today's minutes, Helen is carrying the shelves, helping him to his boat, and we get a pretty good look at them. They look solid wood, like cabinet doors. Oh, yeah. Whoa, where did those come from? Those are different shelves than I was looking at. Okay. So there were probably shelves on the back of the counter. He might have actually taken shelves from underneath the counter. When I use the phrase, he bought out the store, he might have literally just bought the entire store. Yeah. Anything not nailed down. Oh my gosh, that is so excessive. Do you need shelves that badly? I think he wants the wood, not the shelves. I mean, okay, he that makes really sense. explain to us what the wood is specifically for. Perhaps it's for desalinating because Helen, who is a purveyor of salinated goods, has a small wood stove, has a fire going, doing something. So maybe whatever she's doing is for the water, and that's why he wants it as well. The important thing is that he's bought out the entire store and he's now on his way back to his trimaran. He is in the home stretch to get out of here and get back to his solitary lifestyle. This is when you know, you know something is going to go wrong. Right, we're only 20 minutes into the movie. Too much so far has gone right. (laughs) Like, his entire visit to the atoll has gone perfect for him. Mm Mm-hmm. So that just cannot stand. Something has to go wrong. But before things go wrong... We have this fun little exchange between the Mariner and Helen because she wants to pester him about this idea of dry land. She is a dry land believer. So she wants to know if the Mariner has seen the end to all of this water. It's funny because she picks up the conversation right where the Nord left off. Mm -hmm. They both kind of want the same information, generally speaking. And she was content to sit back and listen and glean information off of other people's conversations until nobody else was having a conversation with him and she had to do it herself. And she actually got some good information out of him. He pretty much tells her that he's never been to dry land. Do you disagree? You have a look on your face. I don't feel like his answer is as cut and dry as you're interpreting it. Because he says... You're asking the wrong person. The woman they buried today, she's the only one that found the end of all things. And uh, it strikes me as more of the Mariner wanting to sound edgy and detached from everyone. And it doesn't really ring to me as a real answer one way or the other. That is true. It is a (laughs) non-answer. It's more of a philosophical answer than anything else. Yeah. Not that he's a particularly philosophical guy, but he likes to not answer questions. And surprisingly, instead of just being rude to her and telling her to shut her yap, he answers her with a non-answer. Knowing the facts that he has never seen dry land, it was very easy for me to see a legitimate answer 
in this exchange. This because is because it does end up being true for him at that time. He wasn't answering the question. It's obnoxious in much the same way as if you go to a kid and you're like, hey, where's your brother? And the kid answered with, well, in the grand scheme of things, aren't all people my brother? And you're right in front of me. So, yeah. And it's like, dude, kid, that's not the answer. Like, where is your brother? Wait a second. Wait a second. Are you, Richard, complaining about other people's use of loophole and semantics? No, I'm not complaining about it. I'm just drawing a parallel between those two things. Because that's like your favorite thing. I know. I love loopholes. They're so fun to exploit. (laughs) But I was just adding extra depth to the observation that he's giving a non-answer. All right. All right. Yeah. (laughs) I put down in my notes that if the Mariner isn't careful, he'll cut himself on being so edgy. Like, if black clothing and eyeliner were still a thing, the Mariner would be wearing it just to appear more dark and mysterious. Yes. (laughs) And I was looking at the scenery as the Mariner is walking back to the Trimer and the different things that he's walking by. The things that caught my eye the most were definitely the giant billows that they walk past. There's not a good explanation in the movie as far as what all of these things on the Atoll do, but I appreciate that they are there to fill space. It really does round out the world, and I can imagine what billows would be used for. I mean, they have all this scrap metal, and in order to turn it into anything useful, heating it up and reshaping it is the way to go. So they need hot, hot fires. Mm -hmm. Hot, 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 hot fires. Either way, the Mariner gets to a certain point on his walk back to his trimaran, and he stops, and the camera whips around to find a group of elders advancing towards him. And one in particular, the Priam, raises his hand, and he says, Oh, I've got a proposition for you, Mariner. Because nothing can be simple, and this is the trouble that we were talking about. Yeah, I have this recurring dream theme Mm -hmm. of needing to get somewhere, And things just continually get in my way, and I'm never actually able to get there. And it's very frustrating and scary and hopeless, things like that. It's not pleasant. This is how I feel for the Mariner. He just wants to trade his things, his legitimate trade, Mm -hmm. and leave. And he gets stopped, like, at the last second. I'm looking at this shot here. He is within literal spitting distance of the trimaran yeah if he was any closer he would be able to toss his stuff onto the boat while the elders are talking to him it is that close and he can't get to it and it's awful uh can i distract us for a moment by introducing the preamp oh please so the preamp is played by zakes mokai He was born August 5th, 1934, in Johannesburg, South Africa, and trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and became one of the most distinguished thespians in South Africa for over two decades. According to IMDb, he is best known for his role in this movie, as well as his role as Dargent Patriod in The Serpent and the Rainbow in 1988, as well as Dr. Benjamin Iwabi in 1995's Outbreak. And finally, 
He played a character called Diabria in a 1996 episode of The X-Files. So Mokai was one of the few actors capable of crossing the divided racial sections punctuated by his collaborations with writer Anthal Fugard. Together, they founded the radical theater group, The Rehearsal Room, in the 1950s that specifically dealt with the country's injustices. In fact, over the years, his performances in The Blood Knot, Bozeman and Lena, A Lesson from Aloes, and Master Harold and the Boys have been universally applauded. These are all theater productions in South Africa. Speaking of South Africa, he fled the racist apartheid policies in South Africa in 1969 and migrated to America, subsequently winning a Tony Award in 1982 for Master Harold and the Boys, and he proceeded to perform in American films to somewhat lesser acclaim, including A Dry Season in 1989, A Rage in Harlem in 1991, and this movie Waterworld in 1995. In his later years, he transitioned back to theater as a director. Mokai passed on September 11th, 2009 in Las Vegas, Nevada from complications from a stroke. So has quite a history. Oh, yeah. Very accomplished. Very groundbreaking and envelope pushing, especially considering the apartheid policies in South Africa that he specifically escaped. The video that I looked up on how to pronounce his name was the clip of him winning the Tony in 1982, and it was presented to him by... James Earl Jones, which was pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. I'm guessing that the Priam is the spiritual leader of the Atoll. I mentioned in, I want to say, episode eight, that we don't get names for any of these elders. Right. So Priam, probably spiritual. We've already met the Commerce Elder. We're going to meet another gentleman. The Population Elder is who I call him. He's the one that steps forward and rebuts the Mariner's refusal to bargain because he's not staying, he's leaving. He's the one that steps forward and says, oh, but you haven't heard anything yet or seen it. I call him Population Elder because he's the one that's introducing this idea to the Mariner. Before we move off of him real quick, did you happen to Google the definition of Priam? I did not. Okay, I am looking it up real quick. It looks like the major definition, in fact, I don't see any others was the legendary king of Troy during the Trojan War. Helen is named after Helen of Troy. Mm. So I know that once upon a time, there was a lot more Helen of Troy stuff in like connections and references. There was more Greek mythology and history and whatnot. So jumping off of the mythology thing, I went to the mythology wiki yeah. because everything's got a wikia these days. And according to that... Priam, as the king, had 70 sons. Only some of them are named. They only list 16 here. But his number two son on the list is Paris, the one that ran away with Helen. Yes. The mariner, could you say that he fills the Paris role? Yes, because he does run off with Helen in a non-romantic way. I don't know enough about the story. But the atoll is definitely Troy. Priam was killed during the sacking of Troy. So, yeah, the atoll is definitely Troy. Hindsight's twenty twenty, of course, but it's too bad that the smokers didn't use some sort of subterfuge message to sneak a boat into the atoll before attacking. Well, they did do the suspending the skidoos under the water thing. That's right. They do that weird, like, kick thing where they dive they under dive, and go shoom. under and then come inside. Yeah. 
Okay, I mean, it's not a giant wooden horse, but I'll take it in this situation. We're drawing it very thin strings anyway. (laughs) The danger and entertainment of starting to make connections like that is because of Joseph Campbell and his writings on the monomyth. These are universal stories. They go across cultures and time. You can draw these parallels everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the point that Joseph Campbell was making. But getting back into the clips proper, I want to cut back because I started listing off all of these different people very quickly, and I can definitely do better. Okay. So first and foremost, as the characters are walking up, you've got the pream. He's got the very straight sides to his hat. They come out. He's got a little shawl, and he is not walking arm in arm, but it almost looks like he's got a woman at his side. And... In my early notes, I call her a matriarch because she is an older individual. She's falling around with the elders. So she has to be some sort of older authority figure like they are. Okay, so I see who you're talking about. And I'm wondering if matriarch is indeed the right name for her. I'm wondering if she is in charge of procreation. The more physical side of procreation. Yeah. There is also a man that you dubbed population elder who explains that a woman died, therefore there's room for one more. So there's probably a man who decides, okay, we can add someone to the population. And then there's a woman who, you know, (laughs) knows who a good fit young woman would be to carry a child, knows when she is ovulating knows that she's healthy and capable and all those things. I imagine that there is a woman who is in charge of the physical side of things. Who keeps track of the calendar, so to speak. And also, there's a line in a few seconds. The population elder says, we can look to our own for impregnation, but too much of that sort of thing gets undesirable. Yeah. So I suspect that the matriarch is also in charge of... When you can and cannot have sex. Charting things out to make sure there aren't too many overlaps. So I think she's in charge of contraception. Okay. And their idea of contraception is the calendar method. Okay. (laughs) So the guy that I've dubbed Population Elder, he is the one that is a bit shorter than the Priam, but also more stocky than the Elder who's wearing glasses. And thankfully, the elder who's wearing glasses, he's easy to pick out because he's wearing these big Coke bottle looking glasses and also has plenty to say. And I think them plus the guy that was hanging around with the banker form the upper echelon leadership council Mm -hmm. of the atoll. There's going to be a big group meeting later on and they are all there and they are all speaking from places of authority. So I think it's pretty easy to say they're in charge. Now... All three that we have met in this minute, the Priam, the Population Elder, and the Glasses Elder, they're all wearing the same hat. Is that hat a symbol? It's got to be. Or is it a coincidence? It's got to be. Is it just a be. common style of hats? Because I don't think anybody else that we've seen wears that exact same type of hat. There's a lot of folks wearing a lot of hats, but none of them really stand out to be that exact same type. There's a couple of extras walking around in the background that have them early on in the chunk, but I don't know. There's got to be something that distinguishes these guys. Maybe it's also that their clothing is a bit more long and flowy. 
They definitely don't have badges or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Not that I can see. Definitely part of that culture of having a council is to have some sort of indicator, have something in common, an insignia, a color, a piece of clothing, something that labels you. Mm-hmm. So now that introductions are out of the way and the elders have stopped the mariner, they want to proposition him with something. The mariner is not interested. The population elder says, oh, but you have to see it. And they part, and there is a girl that is standing there among them. How old do you think this girl is? You know, it hadn't even occurred to me to wonder until just now. Is she in the credits? No. Oh, that's too bad. The credits are very lacking. Yeah, we can't look her up and see how old she is. Okay, I got a good still of her. I would peg her anywhere between 14, 15, and maybe 18. That's pretty much the age range that I was thinking of. I was going to put her at about 15, 16. Mm -hmm. Which... Just based on my knowledge of public school education related to reproduction. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's all I really have to go on. I mean, it's not ideal for our society, but their society is different. Yeah. And plenty. I would say most societies prior to ours, women started giving birth in their mid-teens. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's optimal. I don't really know much about the, like, the optimal birthing years. But I can imagine that as long as a woman's body is still growing, it's probably not ready to take on that physical challenge. Of having a child. So women are pretty much full grown at like 17, 18. At least I was. I haven't grown an inch since I was 17 years old. Less than that, it kind of makes sense in my head that it would be best to not. But they don't necessarily know that. Right. All they know is that physiologically, she is a woman. I'm sure the matriarch that we talked about, she keeps close tabs on all of the young women on the atoll. And as soon as they... Let's see, what's an old-timey phrase for getting your first period? As soon as they are bled for the first time, (laughs) that's usually a pretty weird way that people say it. I think in Game of Thrones, they're like, have you had your blood or something like that? Yeah. But if there is a spreadsheet, a post-apocalyptic spreadsheet that the matriarch keeps, this is probably the girl that's at the top of the list when it comes to pregnancy candidates. Right. They don't want the mariner to stick around for a long time, just long enough, so... They want to choose the right young woman who is ready to go. Mm -hmm. And the Glasses Elder explains, you may have noticed us bearing a citizen. There is an opening. And the Mariner's like, I'm not sticking around. I don't care if you have an opening. And they're like, no, 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 no. It's not for you. Yeah. (laughs) The matriarch makes it clear. We don't want you necessarily. We just want your seed. And I'm getting flashbacks to a boy and his dog. Oh, yes. I hated that movie so much. Actually, my first assumption why they wanted his seed was because he was an outsider. It was a selection of DNA that maybe they were too inbred and they knew it and they needed outside DNA, which is exactly what was going on in A Boy and His Dog. If they want an outsider, do you think that they've already tried propositioning the Nord and he's already quote-unquote, made a donation, and that there is a little Nordling running around on the atoll somewhere, and that's why he's not getting harassed like the Mariner is? Yeah, why the Mariner? Why not the Nord? I mean, the Nord's got good genes. Yeah. Like, he's a healthy man. He's got full head of hair. He Strong jawline. Yeah, he's reasonably intelligent. 
So yeah, was he propositioned? Why the Mariner? I think the only explanation for why the Mariner is because it's Kevin Costner's movie. Right. <laughs> like, right. I'm trying to think of an in-universe reason why they would harass him specifically. Yeah. And the only explanation I can think of is one that is meta. <laughs> It is also possible that the Nord is a relatively common visitor. Mm-hmm. And so either he has already made his intentions of no clear, or he has already contributed and they want somebody else to contribute. I think both those things are possible. As we will see, the Mariner's rejection in and of itself isn't the problem. Barring any other suspicions, they would have let him go. But they don't. His negative response sparks more suspicion that just escalates. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that the no in and of itself was the problem. So if the Nord said no thank you, I think they would have been okay with that. And like they said, we can we can have somebody here do it, but we don't want to set an example. Mm-hmm. Too much of that sort of thing gets dot, 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 undesirable and... The population elder, he glances over at the glasses elder when he says the word undesirable. And I have to wonder, is it just the fact that the glasses elder is wearing glasses that he has a recessive gene or something like that? Oh. Or is it just that the glasses wearing elder is a result and an example of an undesirable outcome? Oh, I assumed something completely different from that take. That the undesirable outcome was a population boom that had to be dealt with (laughs) like too many babies too many babies it's supposed to be a single birth and it's a triplet birth and either forced abortions or killing the babies upon birth that's what i suspect and as horrific as both of those things sound in a society where it can only handle 100 people and you're about to have 105 like survival of the many it's a horrible thing to think is okay it really is but to them at that time you gotta do what you gotta do and if that means killing babies i'm a little weirded out that that's where your interpretation went with that line oh well because you know i thought of inbreeding i don't think it's inbreeding i think it's overpopulation okay yeah okay so the matriarch says When she's pregnant, you can go on your way with all the supplies you need. Keep in mind that the Mariner just bought out all of their supplies. Yeah. They don't have anything else that he could want. The Mariner says, you don't have anything, you're dying, which is a point that Helen is going to reiterate in a later scene that I am very excited for because the public meeting that happens later this evening is so great. I love it. While we're still talking about procreating, I have been reading a book. It's called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And it takes place in the distant future, a future where we are part of a galactic community. So there's lots of different species. And in fact, humans are one of the very minor species. We're little babies to everybody else. And we kind of get looked down upon a little bit because of that. But one of the aspects about humanity is that we had to leave Earth. We killed it. We destroyed it. We waterworld it, essentially. And we had to leave. So there were these big, 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 big ships, a la Wally, where everybody, people left. It was called the Exodus. 
So the people who lived on those ships were called Exodans. Well, they, over generations and generations, all of the different nationalities blended. So now the Exodan nationality, it is a new thing. And it's kind of this melding and mixing and evening out of all the different traits. The skin tone and the face shape and language and accent, it's all just kind of melded together into this one pot. So those people are a race that just doesn't exist now. It's just a conglomeration of all the different types of people. I'm kind of surprised that the same thing hasn't happened to these people, that we still see people who are very distinctly Asian and very distinctly African, that they haven't all just melded together and kind of found a middle ground. I think you have to owe that to the isolated nature of the atolls, that when people took to the water and set up these floating communities, they didn't have the benefit of being on a spacefaring arc ship where everybody was mashed together in one contained space. There were still tiny pockets of isolated places. I'm willing to bet that this atoll is so diverse in their population because they came from what used to be the United States. I think it's safe to say that we're floating somewhere over the United States. I don't think that's too outrageous to think. That does seem fairly reasonable. Yeah. The book later on when we do the diving bell scene specifies that they are diving into a city in Colorado. Oh, okay. So there's that. And it makes sense to be diving down to the Rocky Mountains because they're really tall. So Mm -hmm. they're ostensibly closer to the surface of the water. In reality, if the oceans only rose 12,000 feet, they'd be above the water. But, you know, whatever. (laughs) We've already picked that to death. We don't need to worry about that. (laughs) But I imagine that there are atolls that existed floating over Europe and Asia and Africa and maybe even down towards Antarctica or up towards Greenland and Iceland because it looks like the entire planet is a lot more tropical now. So the climate probably evened out. I don't think you have situations where people are living up north on the ice or anything like that because there might not be any ice that reformed yeah i doubt it i expect that the earth is all very tropical and all very relatively even yeah in a hot sort of way (laughs) the mariner is trying to walk away to get back to his boat and we stick with the elders they are whispering one to the other the glasses elder points out that They have not yet encountered a man who stays out on the ocean for 15 lunars and turns down the opportunity to lie with a woman. And the Priam leans in and says, oh, he's hiding something. And it's the population elder who assumes, oh, maybe he's a smoker spy because spies never have sex. (laughs) I think the point was because he's a spy, he's lying about being out 15 months. (laughs) And actually has lain with a woman. This kind of drives me a little nuts. It's so stereotypical. Like, oh, a man hasn't had sex in 15 months. How could he ever refuse a woman? I don't know. Maybe he could be gay. Yeah. There are drifters. There are other drifters. Don't you think? Don't you think that drifters exchange sexual favors? Regardless of gender. The term any port in a storm comes to mind. Yeah, (laughs) because it has been 15 months. And while I look down on these people for stereotyping him that there's no way he could go without for 15 months, that is a long time. 
I mean, yeah, it's it's a long time, but you don't know. Maybe he's hiding a certain type of magazine in his boat, and he is perfectly fine right. doing and that. It's, sex is not necessary for survival. You know what I'm thinking of now? In the first season of The Umbrella Academy, you yeah. follow five. He jumped into the post-apocalypse, and he was all alone, mm-hmm. except for a mannequin. Yep. And he formed this romantic and emotional connection. attached to a mannequin. Yeah. So maybe the Mariner has a mannequin leg in yeah. his boat, and he cuddles up to that every night. You don't know. Yeah. Romantic relationships are about two things. Yes, it's physical, but it's also emotional. So if you replace that emotional aspect with something else, like a mannequin then that can satisfy that need. And there's also people who just don't need that, who are literally loners. And there are people that are just asexual. Yeah. They have no interest in sex. They're all for forging emotional connections with people and having long-term relationships, but the idea of sex holds no sway over them. That's a thing. It is absolutely a thing. I think there are many, many answers to why a man would go 15 months and turn down a woman. There are many possibilities as to why he did this. And they're all plausible. I think I'd like to see a scene where the Mariner goes down into the hull of his boat after he's sailed away from an atoll. And there is the head and torso of a mannequin sitting in a corner. And he's like, oh... You would not imagine what these people tried to make me do before I left. Don't worry. I didn't do it. I wouldn't cheat on you. (laughs) And he's got this entire one-sided dialogue with this mannequin. (laughs) It would explain a lot, I guess. I think it would. So the population elder, he lets out a whistle, and the gatesman is quick to respond. He walks up to the mariner, and he stops him, and he says, When the elders say so, you can leave, and not before, and I can only assume that in the grand scheme of things, this is the worst-case scenario for a drifter. First of all, he's a drifter for a reason. He doesn't like to be tied down. Now, this particular drifter, he has a very specific reason for not wanting to be tied down. Mm -hmm. But any drifter, that is their chosen life. And, you know, it may not be 100% chosen, but... Some drifters, it's what they want. Yeah. He may not have chosen the drift life, but the drift life chose him. Yeah. Either way. The Mariner is not having any of this, you gotta wait sort of thing. And he shoves the Gateman hard enough that he stumbles back and has to catch him. And there's another Gatesman that comes to back up the first one. And as the Mariner's trying to untie the boat, he just, he's, oh, he's so close. He's thrown stuff onto the boat and he's untying it. And these guys jump him. He's not that close because he still has to get through that gate. That's true. They're in control of. So there was no way he was going to leave, even if he got on the boat. If he had gotten on the boat and had pulled away from the dock, it would have forced the people in the atoll to leave the structured platforms that form the atoll and then go across the water to him. And he would have been able to repel them as they get to his boat because then they are coming on to his territory see he's still technically in atoll territory because he's on that little dock that juts out yeah this is a very frustrating moment that he has actually done as much as i don't like him as a character as a person he has done a good job of just going in doing his business and leaving Mm -hmm. quietly no kerfuffle he made no scenes just doing his thing so these two gatesmen Pull the Mariner off of the trimaran and over and 
the Mariner is able to grab onto a post and secure himself. And we get this amazing shot at the end of these minutes where Kevin Costner is up close to the camera and we see Rick Aviles right behind him and he's pulling the Mariner's head back and Rick Aviles' eyes go wide and we spin around and Rick Aviles pulls Kevin Costner's ear away from his head, revealing something. And we get this great line reading from the Gatesman. He goes, ah, gills. <laughs> it's so great. Oh, the way he performs it is just so great. I have questions, though. Okay. So we get to see the gills. Mm-hmm. How does the Gatesman know their gills? It's literally, it's just a slit behind his ear. What makes him think that those are gills? Has he seen them before? I can only assume that he recognizes them as gills because he's probably gutted a fish or two in his time. They don't look like fish gills. I've never looked that closely at fish gills to tell you one way or the other. <laughs> and besides, fish gills are mostly just slits in the side of a fish, but there's usually like four or five of them, like in a row. Yeah, it looks like you've got the ear, and then the ear goes down to a sort of skin flap, and that skin flap overlaps enough of the situation where I guess it sucks closed when he's I, breathing regular air. I guess so. Honestly, what it looks like, and what it probably is, is it looks like he's got a prosthetic ear on that is pulling off of his head. Yeah. That's what it looks like. <laughs> and that's a fine representation. I have no problem with the representation or the job they did, but there's a decent chance that's exactly what it is. Just a prosthetic that they put on and then peeled halfway off. I appreciate that we do have the Gatesmen specifically say gills. That way we're not sitting in the theater saying, oh, what the heck is going on? His prosthetics are coming off. That's so weird. <laughs> it is laid out in black and white, no uncertain terms, exactly what these things are. So when we come back next week, we'll get to see how the Atollers treat someone with a genetic abnormality. This response is going to prompt the Enforcer to step in and will ultimately result in the Mariner being locked in a cage. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 11. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>